Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Book Pop with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Oorang Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Book Pod, I'm Corrie Kirkin and today we visit the East Sussex Garden of writer and author Lula Ellender. Lula's new book, Grounding, Finding Home in a Garden is a beautiful story of Lula's relationship with her garden, its role in the life of her family, its unexpected role as a conduit between Lula and her late mother, and the many ways it prompts her to consider nature and its influence on the world's great writers and artists. Lula's book starts with an eviction letter of all things. Lula, welcome to the book pod. Lovely to see you there in the UK. This is such a beautiful book. You must be thrilled with the cover of it, Lula. Yeah, it's actually a friend of mine who did that. Um, They asked me if I knew anyone who could do something like of the local landscape. And he's an amazing artist who lives in my town. And so he did it for me, which is amazing. It's wonderful. I couldn't see anywhere that you name your town. What is your town? It's about 15 minutes from Brighton. It's in the South Downs, which is now a national park. So it's kind of rolling chalk hills and downland. Um, It's a very old town, very higgledy-piggledy, lots of history. It's kind of a crazy town as well. It has, yeah, lots of, uh, it always seems to be setting fire to things. And so it's a very rich place in terms of its history. And the sea is obviously very close, so it's connected to yeah the coast, the history of the coast and the history of the downs kind of combine and where I live. And I didn't name it just because it's quite clear from the book if you know the town where we live. In fact, there were some people outside the house the other day just trying to work out if it was this house. And I was just a bit conscious that my kids, you know, yeah. they might not be that comfortable with it. And, and I'm, glad, I'm, I'm sort of glad you didn't actually. You had me Googling the whole kind of area, the South Downs, all of that sort of thing. Because I remember on one trip to England, we ended up in Hastings. I'm completely in the zone of where you are. I remember the beautiful drive down. Why did you live in Melbourne for four years? We came over, so we sort of had this plan to do a big world trip. So, yeah, we stopped in Melbourne and I had a really lovely job and they said that they would sponsor me to go back kind of long term. So instead of doing a big trip, we came back to England, applied for the visa and then went back again. And so I was working in a distance education school there. And 
that was brilliant but then I got pregnant and I felt really homesick and I didn't want to have a baby on the other side of the world so we came back that same year when my son was like six weeks old and got married over there just before he was born in Dalesford yeah it was lovely I really loved it but I just felt too far away from everybody Lula you how old are your kids now they're 19 17 15 and 12 great so you're out of the hard the hard years yeah, we're in a sort of different hard years, though. It's kind of emotionally a lot harder, I think. I mean, I think the last two years have been hard for everybody, but that age group particularly had a terrible time. It's a different sort of form of stress. It, I always say it goes from physical hard work to emotional hard work. It's so true. It's really true. And can you tell us about the impact of this eviction letter? Yeah, so it wasn't a proper eviction notice. It was actually a letter just telling us the house was going on the market. Um, so we lived there for several years and we kind of took it on the understanding that it was going to be a long term rental that we could kind of just raise our children here. And then our landlord died and the house was kind of involved in this really complicated probate struggle. And the consequence of that was that it was put on the market. So I was utterly devastated, partly because this was my home and I live in a very um, kind of wealthy town and we can't really afford to live anywhere else here so we were faced with this prospect of having to completely relocate the whole family but also my mum had just died so I was already feeling very kind of unmoored and destabilized and it also tapped into this this old loss that I had as a child so my parents uh, separated and my dad went bankrupt and we had to sell the house that we lived in when I was 11 so I'd had a loss like this as a child and that house really haunted me through my whole life. I imagined I would one day buy it back and I used to go and visit it and kind of sit outside and weep in a very dramatic way. Um, So there were all these different things feeding into this situation that I found really paralyzing and difficult when when it kind of first happened. The haunting of a house, as you say that, that reminds me of Anne Patchett's The Dutch House. Have you read that? No, I've heard about it, though. I've listened to a podcast and it sounded something I should read. There is, there is, uh, there is a theme in, in so much in literature of people wanting to go back to, to a childhood place, a place that they lost, a place that they were wrenched away from. It's a very big part of Indigenous writing, Aboriginal writing here in Australia. I think you really tap into it in such an interesting way in your book. But was it entirely expected or unexpected? A rental property here in Australia, I know in the UK there is, uh, there's, a, there's a real tradition of renting places for long periods of time. Here in Australia, not so much. Were you kind of expecting that one day this might happen or had you and your husband and the four kids lulled yourselves into this state of security? I think we, we had lulled ourselves into a bit of a false state of security, but it, we have been evicted before, so I know it happens. And there is very little kind of long-term security in terms of the law for tenants in England. So it's, yeah, and lots of my friends were renting, you know, had similar situations. So I always knew it was a possibility. So we were always living with that sense of slight precarity. But because of who owned our house, it was one of those houses that we felt was probably really the safest in terms of being able to stay. So it was a shock. But our landlord was very old and we knew that when he did die that, probably something was going to happen I think it was more the timing of it and yeah this this idea that my mum was gone and nothing really felt like I couldn't really make sense of things 
anyway. So this was just another thing that I couldn't really make sense of. You also mentioned too in the book the political zeitgeist at the time, that the, 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 politically the world and the UK was a place of enormous uncertainty. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, so the year this happened was the year of the Brexit referendum in the UK, which was very divisive and uh, horrible. And um, I was very upset about the result. Um, it was the year of Trump being elected. It was a year where the kind of norms of society seemed to be being really challenged and thrown apart. So again, it was another, I, I felt like the world was destabilizing. We were really having to face up to climate change nothing really felt very steady in anywhere you know in any way on a personal level on a political level on a kind of global level it felt like quite an extraordinary year so in the book Lula you talk about this state of inertia which which comes with grief it is one of the side effects of grief we know that and you had as you say this double whammy with not only losing your mother but being told there the house of the person who had died the house was going to be up for sale and you and your husband the kids you poured so much love and energy but particularly you a lot of hard work and design skill and collecting of seeds and all your gardening knowledge into this garden and the thought of losing the garden having lost your mother must have just of course driven you just to the sofa it would have driven me to drink to be honest <laughs> but <laughs> but but I, I, I was really interested about your thinking through of the process of getting back into the garden was it about that garden even though it might have been a, a transient related a momentary relationship not long to go that you had with this garden what what forced you back outside it's quite yeah I, I wasn't expecting that to be my reaction because I really felt at first like well what's the point in investing time and energy in growing things and buying plants if we're just not going to be here to see them grow and it was as I was so my book started off in a different kind of way it was about homesickness so I was reading a lot about homesickness and exile and people being uprooted but not really in relation to the garden and I suddenly began to see this connection between uprooting of plants and the situation I was in and I was interested in exploring that and I was reading about Vanessa Bell from Charleston and her garden and I, and I realized that they were renting that house even though they covered every surface and in incredibly beautiful artworks and they created this amazing garden they didn't own it either and I kind of thought well maybe you can still create beauty and you can still nurture the place that you're in even though it's not yours and even though you may not be there to see it flourish and perhaps by doing that I had this kind of weird magical thinking where I thought if I make the garden full of abundance and food and beauty perhaps we'll be here to stay perhaps we'll be here to see it flourish and I think in a, a in a situation where I felt I had very little agency, it was a way of having some agency. It was a way I could take some action, do something. I'm, I'm quite a sort of practical person. I, I like to do things and have a plan. And in that situation, like, there was no plan. And so the garden really felt like the only place that I could do that, that I could be creative and I could partly escape the situation, but also do something about the situation. I just felt I couldn't live with this sort of sense of dejection and waiting for things to happen to me. Um, and the garden really felt like a place I could work through all of that. 
I love this uh, part early in the book. You talk about about this curious state that you found yourself unable to go into the garden and and then realising that perhaps this was the healing place for you. And you write, the progress I've made in the garden in the space of a few hours makes me realise just how little progress I've made elsewhere. In the wake of my mother's death and with the threat of losing the house hanging over us, I am finding it hard to be creative. That is very, very common. We hear these stories, particularly during lockdown. As you and I discussed before we went to air, Melbourne has had several lockdowns. The UK has had a few as well. People often talk about one of the side effects was this lack of creativity. Artists, writers, painters, a lot of people have been saying that this is a side effect. You say also, perhaps this is why many writers and artists also love gardening, the powerful fusion of labour, craft and creativity. I love that, Lula. Next time I'm pulling weeds, I'm going to remember that. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I was so interested in the connection between creativity and gardening. And a lot of the gardens that I kind of went to explore were gardens of writers and artists. And I was interested in them partly for the gardens themselves, but also because they used the gardens to create things that they could make art from. So they grew plants that they believed would be good things to paint in a vase inside the house. So it wasn't just that they wanted the garden to look good, it had to kind of feed their creative practice as well. And so I was really interested in that, the kind of the inspiration that we can get from the things in a garden as well as the active gardening itself. Uh, you talk about Monet's Giovanni in Paris and, of course, Vita Sackville West, Sissinghurst, very well known to so many of our listeners. I'm sure a lot of them have made the trek to Sissinghurst. Emily Dickinson, who you described as, or she described herself, quote, as a lunatic on bulbs. <laughs> but I, am, I was interested in your exploration of Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant, whose property, Charleston, I, I had no idea they didn't own it for a start. We've often read in that Bloomsbury group, we've read about the importance of the garden and the home at Charleston and so on. But tell me a bit more about that, because that was a garden or is a garden quite close to where you live. So, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting place to garden. I didn't really have much experience gardening before, so I can't really compare it. I haven't gardened on like a rich clay or anything. And this is the only place I've ever worked. <laughs> and tell, tell me about Charleston up the road. Or not quite up yeah, the so Charleston is um, just a few miles away and it's a really beautiful old farmhouse, again, nestled in the hills, just at the foot of the hills. And it was kind of rented in 1919, I think in 1919, by Vanessa Bell and her husband, Clive Bell, who didn't actually move in there. And it was a, a, a place initially they were trying to escape the city they wanted a place to be creative they wanted a place that their friends could come and create art but also they were experimenting with different ways of living um, in terms of relationships there was a much more kind of fluid attitude towards marriage they were often having affairs with other people but quite openly and so Vanessa Bell who was in love with Dun- Duncan Grant moved there with him but also Clive Bell was kind of financing it all so it was a funny setup in terms of you know, the kind of post-Victorian morality. They were very interesting in the way that they were pushing all of those boundaries. And I think Charleston just became a place that all of those things were possible. They could live in this slightly different way without judgment. Um, They were were very self-sufficient. They could grow their own food. 
the men could work the land and that was useful if they were being uh, told they had to go and join a war they could show that they were doing important war work because they were tending the land but it also I think was this kind of idea of utopia which is something I'm really interested in in gardens as well because there is this sense that you're creating a sort of Eden out there and I think for them that was very much what they were doing as I said before about growing plants for your for your art that was a really big thing for Vanessa Bell and for Duncan Grant. They wanted to paint the flowers that they were growing, but also the garden was where they had parties. It's where they put on plays. The children just ran wild through it. So it, it served so many different functions. I was really interested in that. So with your own gardening experience, which you say until you moved to your current property was pretty limited, although your mother was a gardener and I want to talk about her, uh, her, her gardening journal a little bit later. But what was it about this particular property that encouraged you and spurred you on? What, what was it you were trying to create? Was it your own oasis, your own haven? Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in the idea of childhood gardens and how those kind of echoes throughout our life. So I think for me, I was trying to create something of the garden that I had when we lost that house, this sense of freedom, the sense of play, the sense of possibility. My my garden's way smaller than Charleston and much smaller than the land that we had when I was a child, but it it was the feeling of it. And I've done lots of research on and talked to a lot of people about this. And I think that is what we're trying to do. Those gardens are always carried with us. And even if it was just a small, courtyard the the feeling that we had in it as a child of safety or play or adventure they're things that we try and recreate so I think that's what I was trying to do for my kids was trying to create a space that they could play in but also that I could play in and often those things were um kind of in conflict so they would kick footballs into all my flowers and I would be cross so I wasn't a completely it wasn't a completely free place of for them to play and we just got rid of the trampoline, actually, and they were outraged, even though they didn't go on it anymore. <laughs> and I really wanted to grow food to feed us. I wanted to be able to provide for my family outside of the kind of the system where I had to go and buy food that someone else had grown. And I mean, I've never managed to really achieve that. My crops have never been large enough to feed my big family. It's quite dry. The, the chalk is very porous, obviously. So the soil is quite dry where we are. I, I still don't completely understand the soil in my garden because I think it, a lot of it must have been brought in from somewhere else because it's not just chalk. Uh, but yeah, so it's the things you can grow need to be able to withstand kind of drought conditions. But as well, we get very heavy rain in the winter um, and that's definitely changing. I've noticed over the last few years out there that the winters are much wetter and warmer and the summers are drier and hotter. But it's the sense of that, I think, the sense of, of being empowered to grow your own food. I just think that's so wonderful. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. I want to talk about your mother's garden diary, which you discovered as you were working through her things and in the home, which is which was then became, of course, it is the home of your stepfather. You found her garden diary. Was that a surprise? No, I I knew that it existed because she'd shown it to me years ago. And then I thought I had lost it. So I was absolutely delighted when I found it because I was feeling terrible about it. And I really was trying to find it. I couldn't find it anywhere. 
And then when we were looking through her things, I realized she hadn't given it to me at all. It was still in her house. So uh, that was a huge relief. And it was just such a joy to, to go through it and to see the different jobs she was doing that I was also doing in my garden. And it became this kind of dialogue with her, even though she wasn't there anymore, that I could try and not just emulate what she was doing, but just, it was more that there was this kind of sense of her being alongside me as I was working in my garden. And actually about two weeks ago, I just found another one going through a whole box of stuff in my house. So I think she had given me one, but it wasn't the one that I found. And this one is really funny. She's sort of made it herself out of bits of card and it's all falling apart. But it, again, it, it's just this lovely thing. Now I can imagine what she's doing, you know, in June, over all these different years that she was writing. And we've just sold the house, my stepfather died. And so we, the house is gone. So the, these two garden journals are re really the, a portal back to that place. Um, and I'm, they're so precious to me. I can imagine they are. So when you sat down to write this book or you were thinking about the story and what it looked like, what was it looking like? What did you, what did oh. you want to say? Well, as I said, it started in a very different way. I was looking at homesickness, but I couldn't really find a way in. I couldn't find a, a, a kind of personal narrative strong enough to carry the, the research I was doing. Um, and I had a conversation with my editor and I was saying I was trying to do this thing. And she said, why don't you write about your garden? And I just thought, yes, that's absolutely the way that I should do this. And I thought I could follow a growing season in the garden. So that gave me a structure. But I'd spent quite a lot of time before that working on this idea of homesickness. So I had a lot of ideas I wanted to work in. And I also wanted to write about these other gardens that I was going to and have a sense of bringing the reader into my garden as if I was sort of taking them by the hand and walking them around my garden, but also around these other gardens. And so trying to hold all of that together was a bit of a challenge. And at points, my editor said it was a bit like I had a balloon and I kept floating off into the sky and she had to keep pulling me back down, ironically grounding me. <laughs> but it was a really uh, so it was a challenge to write this book because I wanted to bring in so much stuff and I had to make sure it was coherent and that it had a structure. And I teach creative writing and that's often one of the things that people really struggle with is finding the way to the framework for all of this stuff. And it's one of the things I find most exciting is working with them to try and find that. So I know from experience how tricky that is. So yeah, it started as a book about homesickness and it became a book about gardens and how we use them to create a sense of belonging and home. So it's still got the same, the same kind of heart, but just with a different approach. What was your eureka moment? Can you remember? Yeah, it was really the conversation with my editor but it wasn't such a sort of instant eureka moment. It was more of a sort of, oh, yes. And it slowly sank and sank. And I thought more and more about it. And then I could see how to make it work. It wasn't like a big epiphany moment. Uh, I worked through it and I, I had to let it sort of percolate for a while while I tried to figure out all these things. I had a, a wall of index cards where I had a little studio and I just put them all on the wall and I moved them round and... I love all of that part, the kind of the, the, the physical structuring of things. So I, I played around with it and very slowly this shape emerged. And then I thought, yes, this is it. I'm, I'm ready. I can start. <laughs> the homesickness thing is, is um, again, just to, to the reference for me as I was reading your book was another fiction book, which is Elif Shafak. So I'm not sure whether you read it, um, The Island of Missing Trees. And it was just shortlisted for the Women's Prize, actually. 
But uh, she talks about the, the island of Cyprus in the, in the 1970s, the civil wars there, and a family uh, escape to, to London to live. And they bring with them the cutting of a fig tree. And so the fig tree actually is the narrator of the book, oh, which wow. in itself is wonderful because the fig tree over the years has become part of the turf but talks about the experience of having been thrown in this freezing cold London ground after after beautiful Cyprus. I mean, there are parts of humour in this book, but it's also incredibly sad and the sense of longing for return. And you say in your book, throughout human history, when migrants or refugees arrive in a new place, they bring seeds or plants to connect them to their homeland, hoping the soil in their new place will nurture these talismans of home. Beautiful words. And, and it was a really beautiful part of the book, I thought, because you did get me thinking about here in, in Australia with so many migrants from different countries, when you see six lemon trees in the front row of a little terrace house in Fitzroy, you know that probably 40 years ago or 50 years ago, there was an Italian or a Greek migrant who planted those. Yeah, I was so interested in that. And, you know, even people who were enslaved from Africa, kind of women would braid the seeds into their hair so they had something they could bring with them. And, and, and I think that sense of continuity is something that's so amazing about gardening. So although it's constantly in flux, a garden is never the same from moment to moment. There is this sense of continuity. There is this reassurance that the seasons will keep turning. And there is this sense of connecting us to other places. So I've got things growing in my garden that I took from my mum's garden. I've got hollyhocks that I kind of stole a bit from Charleston as I was walking around and sweet peas that I pinched off you know that people do that they gather things and I think it can be incredibly important there's a really lovely book called the lemon tree I think that's what it's called and it's about a Palestinian man whose house is taken over and he takes a lemon and he plants the tree from the seeds and that he carries the lemon around and kind of weeps all through the night holding this lemon because it's the only thing he's got left of home and often they are the, the, the living things, the only remaining li living connections that we've got. I think it's very powerful. Well, I also want to come to your annual community seed swap. <laughs> talk, talk about sharing experiences with one another. This is wonderful. As you say in the book, gardeners are sharers, but can you tell us all about the annual community seed swap? Yes, yeah, so I think they happen all over the country. So every year, kind of at the beginning of spring, the town hall is filled with nursery people and just ordinary people like me. And you can go along and you just drop your seeds into a in a little envelope into a box and then you can take seeds away again. So it's this lovely free exchange of seeds. There are plants to buy there as well. And I think there's this idea that becoming more and more um, prominent that we can we don't have to exist within the kind of capitalist system that we can we can do it ourselves. And why are we buying very expensive kind of highly processed seeds from one huge conglomerate when we can just you know go and ask someone down the road for some seeds from whatever's growing in their garden and often those things will grow better because they're grown locally and so they're suited to the climate and to the soil and so there's this lovely sort of rebelliousness to it as well the fact that they're free and people have collected them love the idea that yeah that this idea of sharing people will have a kind of glut of courgettes and they'll go and give them to their friends. So I've always got way too much rhubarb, so I'm, I'm passing that on. And I think that's just a lovely way to build a sense of community locally as well. 
And certainly during lockdown, of course, which is, I, I gather, when you started writing this book, but lockdown here in, here in Australia, here in Melbourne particularly, there was so much of that sharing. People, people went to the garden because there was no one, nothing else really to do. The gardens of yeah. Melbourne probably have never looked so beautiful or well-tended. <laughs> but there was a lot of, oh, sharing over the fence. Would you like a bag of lemons? The community, the neighbourhood, the street became so important during those times because we couldn't travel anywhere. Yeah, and, and the same in England. The garden centres were one of the few things that were still open at the beginning of the lockdown. So I think they were selling out of plants and everyone was just trying to do something. And again, like I said at the beginning, this sense of powerlessness, well, gardening was something that we could do at least and that might make us have something to look out on that was beautiful. But yeah, this lovely idea that, I, I think with gardens, you they're never really just yours. They belong to the community. They belong to the creatures that live there. They belong to the people who owned them before or who tended them before. And so there's this, there is a, a kind of sense of communality with them, even though they might be fenced in or they might have a hedge around them. You, they're never really just yours and they're never really yours at all. And I think indigenous cultures have a much better attitude towards land they don't sort of feel they own it they're stewards or they're looking after it and I think yeah we can think about gardens differently they don't have to be a kind of our place that we've hemmed in and kept for ourselves they can be shared and enjoyed. Well you've mentioned the the topic of ownership and one of the things I I, I really loved about your book Grounding apart from your musings and your observations and your research about all of these issues we've discussed You've also got this rather climactic build about what on earth is going to happen with this rather tricksy uh, legal case <laughs> of the of the people who have inherited the house in which you live. This whole probate wrangle: who's going to end up with the house, and will you be allowed to stay? Which you reveal to us toward the end of the book. So I'm not going to give it away, but I just wonder if you can tell us. Are you still in your garden? <laughs> yes, I'm still in my garden and very, very grateful and happy to be here. It's, it's such a relief. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. Have you been doing much publicity yet or, or writers weeks or, or I just I'm, I'd be fascinated to know what crowd responses are, Lola, because I think it's it's a subject whether you're a gardener or not. To be honest, this book touches your heart in so many different ways. Grief is a big part of it, recovery from grief, uh, cocooning yourself after you've gone through something quite traumatic, when you're going through something traumatic like being told, sorry, but you have to leave the home. And then also, particularly for women, you do address that issue of empty nesting because your children are now all teenagers. Some have left school, finished school. And, and what women go through when they have dedicated home life and garden life to this family, what does the family look like when they all grow up? Do they go away? And what's their sense of going away? And what's their sense of home? There are so many wonderful issues in this book. I wondered what audiences have been telling you. Oh, thank you. That's so kind of you. I've had yeah, a lovely summer of doing book events and talking to people. And one of the most wonderful things about it is people wanting to share their stories of their gardens. And it's just been such a privilege to talk to people and to hear their stories. And last summer I did a, a writer in residence project. I'm doing it again, actually, um, next month at Charleston in the garden again, where I asked people about uh, places that had their heart and they gave me words that described how they felt there. And I made a kind of poem and planted 
invited them into this a drawing of the garden. So I've had some amazing conversations with people and I've been thinking really quite deeply about place and our connections to places. And so, yeah, that's been absolutely a joy. And it, it is interesting that people who aren't gardeners have connected to the book. I was really hoping that would be the case because it's not a how-to garden book. And I, I find those books, you know, as a gardener, really inspiring, but I wouldn't want to pick them up if I wasn't. So I wanted it to have a wider reach than that. I was, I was as you say, exploring ideas of motherhood and what does it mean to have a home when the home that you created was all for your children and then they're going. And when your marriage is kind of reaching that point where you think, what will we talk about when the kids have left? Who am I creating this home for? Do they even want me there? And this sense of home feeling like a trap as well as a place that was a place of safety. And so I wanted to explore all of those things as well. And yeah, I've had lovely responses. I have no idea how many copies are selling. I don't understand how that business works. <laughs> I think I'm too scared to ask. But yeah, the, the conversations I've had, which is ultimately why I write, I think it's to reach people and to have those conversations with people and people like you you know it's just such a privilege so I'm incredibly grateful for all of that. Well I'm incredibly grateful that I had an opportunity to meet you but also to read your beautiful book. Everybody it is available in Australia it's published by Granta Books but Granta is distributed in Australia through Alan and Unwin our good friends there. It's Grounding Finding Home in a Garden by Lula Ellender. I can't give you the price because I took the price tag off very carefully, so I can't say how much it is, but it's a beautiful collectible hardcover and, dare I say, a really thoughtful gift to give to somebody, Lula. Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely and it's been great to meet you. Thanks for joining us on the Book Pod. Thanks for your brilliant question. Thank you so much for having me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.